The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. So I'm going to go no notes, all right? I'm going to be really snappy today because I got bogged down first service a little bit and too many details. If you'll listen quick, I'll speak quick, all right? But I want to start today with the maps, all right? I joked with first service, did you know there's another level of spirituality that comes when you get into the maps in your Bible? Did you know that? You guys have been missing it all those years. You've not even looked at the maps, and God was going to take you so much deeper if you... I'm joking, all right? Total joke. But I want to just show you a map to help you understand um, a little bit of the context of this story that we want to look at from the Old Testament. This is the map, the Persian Empire. You have Babylon, first super empire, then you have Persia. Later you're going to have Greece, then you're going to have Rome. We recognize Rome, right? Jesus comes into the world during Rome. This is the second one, Persia. They controlled what was really the, the most important civilizations of that day. The power structure of the world sat right there. That's Iraq, Iran, um, Jordan, come down in um, Egypt. Um, and so our story takes place when the Persian Empire is in power. The Persian Empire had taken over from Babylon. And you remember in, in the course of God's people, the Jewish people, it was when Babylon was in power that they came to the country of, of Israel, the Canaan land, and they ransacked it, and they overtook it, and they captured it, and they began to take off the best and brightest Jewish people. It was their way of trying to just demoralize, demolish a country. And you remember they took them off into exile, out into the lands of what was Babylon, which is now Persia. And Persia uh, comes to power. King Darius, their, 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 great, their, their greatest king, lives and conquers and, and um, is, is ruling over the world for a number of number of years. But along about 485 B.C., um, 
Darius is, is fighting with Greece. If you notice there, Greece, clear on your left side, Athens. They kept, they kept fighting against, and they had been overtaken, and then they fought back. It was called the Battle of Marathon, 490 B.C. They, they were able to get back their land. In fact, it was in that battle that a man ran 26 miles. And hence, that's what we get the distance for marathons even today. The 26.2 comes from that battle, the battle of marathon. So when you run your marathons now, you can kind of have a little bit of context. And, and Darius is consumed with getting Greece back, and yet he dies. And when he dies, his son Xerxes comes to power. And Xerxes is consumed also with what his dad wants to do, to take back Greece you know 200 years later, Greece will rise up. Alexander the Great, and they will conquer the world. The Persians realize that they were a threat, and they're consumed. And so when you begin to read in the book of Esther, you're, set, you're, you're, you're thrown into the context of this kind of story, of a, ki a king, Xerxes, who is consumed with, with um, his power, uh, but he's so consumed with his power that he wants to come back and take over Greece. He wants to rule the entire world. And when we begin to read the first verses in Esther, and guys, you don't have to put that up today. You guys are gonna trust me. I'm telling you a scriptural story, right? I had a lot of scripture, and I kind of got bogged down. So I'm just gonna tell the story, and I'm gonna ask you to read the story this week, Esther 1, especially 1 through 7. It's not long reading. It's good. But um, so you're, you're opened up to this, this king having this six-month-long uh, festival where he's just showing off his, his power. And we read about just affluence and wealth that we can't even imagine. And for six months, he's just displaying this, displaying this. He's trying to do two things. He's trying to remind all his people just how powerful they truly are to give them confidence. But he's also, for six months, as they're just doing this thing and they're planning and and they're partying and they're they're just living the high life he's also trying to cause fear into his opponents to recognize man these people just take six months off to party and plan they're so powerful and we see in the midst of that that he does that and and then there's a there there's this this week after that that six long summit so to speak that he has a banquet and you would read about there is just all sorts of, of uh, partying and drinking and celebrating going on. And in fact, we would read down through Esther chapter 1 and we would read where the king... Xerxes, after he's shown off all his wealth and he has just overwhelmed everybody with just how powerful he is, he decides in a kind of a drunken stupor to, uh, to show off uh, another of his possessions and that's his queen, Queen Vashti. And so he wants, in front of all his guests and all his people, he wants the queen to come in and, and I, it's kind of confusing what he was asking her to do. Um, we do know he wanted her to put on the crown and, and I've read some accounts that I think that's maybe what he only wanted her to wear. It's kind of one of those deals. And um, the queen refused. Like, I ain't doing that. I, I, I feel like I'm a spectacle. You're making a kind of a thing out of me. I'm being, I'm being um, used here. And it causes big scene. The queen refuses the king. And out of that, the king realizes, if I don't do something about this, and you can read this in Esther, he, it literally says that if I don't do something about what the, the queen's insubordination, 
then every woman in the empire will be insubordinate to her husband, all right? That's literally what he thought. The women's, liber- the women's liberation movement of the Persian Empire will start. And so he, he deals very harshly with her. And he actually decrees, this degree, decree, remember the laws of the Medes and Persians, it can't be, can't be altered, it is what it is. He makes one of those kind of things and he decrees that the queen is removed from her position. She's not killed, which is amazing because this man was unhinged in so many ways. Um, but we, probably it was because she was pregnant with his son and he didn't want to, to, to kill her for that, but he removes her from the throne. And then as we would read in Esther, we, we see that chapter two jumps in and it's like four years later because for four years, this king has been consumed with defeating Greece and he never can do it. He never could do it, never could do it, never could do it. And we see after four long years of this struggle, he comes back and just stops and he comes back to his palace and we read where he comes back and he realizes, I have everything but I don't have a companion and I miss Vashti but I've made this decree and his, his, uh, the people around him realize that he needs a queen and so they, they put out this elaborate kind of, honestly, it's a modern day pageant is what it is. It's Miss Universe circa 580 B.C. See, you thought that was new and that was made for TV. No, this has been happening for thousands of years. He had 127 provinces. And what they decided to do is each province going through a series of competition. I don't know. I don't know what they had. I don't know if they had evening gowns or whatever, you know, whatever that stuff. I don't watch that stuff, but I know that there's different phases. I don't know what they did. Bottom line was one woman was chosen from each of the 127 provinces. And those women were then given a year to prepare themselves to go before the, before the king. I don't know how long it takes you to get ready, ladies, when you go out. Makeup and hair and accessories and all that. Maybe 45 minutes. No one's going to answer. Give yourself a year. That's what this was. And in the middle of that scene, we're introduced to this girl named Esther. We recognize the writer shares with us that Esther was a Jew, but no one knew that. Esther's parents and her grandparents had been part of the people who had been exiled, torn from their homeland, taken to a far land. And in the midst of her life, her parents both had died. She was on her own, and her uncle Mordecai takes care of her. And we're introduced to this Jewish girl who is selected from one of the 127 provinces. We read that when she gets to the palace and she's preparing this year, that she was so beautiful and she was so favorable that even the the person in charge of this whole pageant was just, he he was taken with her. And he would treat her specially and favorably and would look out for her and give her extra stuff and just help her. And, and we read that actually the way the story goes, the story of Esther, is come the year, when the year came up and 127 women went before the king, he chose her. He chose her. And you would say this is made for, this is made for Hollywood, right? The Jewish girl, the slave, the exiled the nobody becomes the queen of the greatest empire the world is seeing right then. 
the whole empire. She's the queen. And you would think, you know, you'd start to see the credits run, and that would be over, and it would be like one of those movies you guys like to, you ladies like to watch. Ah. They lived happily ever after. But chapter three introduces us to another character in this story. We're introduced to this man named Haman. Haman becomes number two in all of the kingdom. We read that Haman was a um, Agite. And you see, Esther, when she was made the queen, she appointed her uncle Mordecai, made sure he was in a position in the government. And Mordecai did well. In fact, Mordecai happened to overhear about an assassination plot on the king. And he actually uncovers that plot, reveals it, and enables the king's army to eliminate the would-be assassins. He becomes a little bit of a hero. He's recognized. He, um, although he's not recognized by the king yet, it's put in the royal record, the, uh, the official record that Mordecai had helped save the king's life. And you see, Mordecai was visible around the palace. He had a place now in the government. And Haman comes to power or is in power, and he was, he was given such an official title that everywhere he went, people bowed down before him. He was that powerful. And we read in the story that Haman, the Agite, keeps going places around the palace, and when he is in Mordecai's presence, everybody else bows but Mordecai, the Jewish man. And it begins to stick in Haman's crawl. He begins to be irritated by the fact, how is it that everybody else is supposed to bow, but that man, who's really just a a kind of a government person, doesn't bow. And he begins to inquire a little bit more about who is this guy. And he realizes that this man, Mordecai, is a Jewish man. Now, to Haman the Agite, that means a lot. You see, Haman the Agite, he is a descendant of King Agag. That's why he's an Agite. I guess I'm a Bullockite. I don't know. Or you're ever whatever you are. If you remember the Old Testament story, the Amalekites, I'm throwing a lot of weird titles at you. The Amalekites were a people that early on God had cursed. Because of the way they treated the early Jewish people, God had cursed them. And it finally came to a point when King Saul was the king of Israel that he called for Saul to go and destroy the Amalekites. And you remember it's in that story that he said, eliminate every part of them. Don't leave them a left. And that's another story we can talk about if you have questions about God, okay? That's for another sermon. But he said, wipe them out. You remember Saul goes and when he's going to do that, he says, man, those are some nice animals. And wow, these people, they could be useful to us. And so he chooses to not wipe them out. He chooses to save the best. And you remember that story when he comes back to Israel and Samuel, the prophet of God, the voice, the representative of God to the land of Israel. He meets Saul when he's coming back and he says, Saul, what have you done? I hear animals and I see people and I remember we, God had specifically told you to bring nothing back. You remember that's when Saul says, well, 
I, I thought that they could be useful to us and we could sacrifice the animals and it would please God. And it's that famous line in scripture that my mom taught me over and over and over. God expects obedience more than anything. Not rationalization, but obedience. And you remember that Saul's standing there, and Samuel is letting him have it and telling him this. Is you have disobeyed God, and actually that was the beginning of Saul's decline. One of the saddest figures in all the scripture, he just declines from there. And Samuel's just like, you have disobeyed God and you are doing this. And Samuel, in a righteous indignation, grabs a sword. And Saul had not killed their king, who was Agag. And Samuel walks over to him and he just, yeah. I mean, he just cuts him to pieces. Haman knows that story. He's a descendant of that man. And for hundreds of years now, the prejudice has lived, has lived in their people. And when he realizes who Mordecai is, he realizes he represents the people who did that to my family. And it's so deep within him that we read in Esther that he decides, you know what? I'm not gonna go to the king and say, hey, this guy's not bowing down. Can I execute him? He devises a plan whereby he can not only execute Mordecai, but he can use Mordecai as a way to stir up the king to eliminate all the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. And he puts the story into place and he presents it to the king in such a way that the king agrees with him. And says, all right, Haman. Haman told him there's people in this land that are never gonna bow down to you. They're insubordinate and you need to be aware of them and you need to do something about it. And gets the kings, you know, this guy was, I mean, he was a freak. I read a story about his anger that when he was invading Greece, that he built bridges across this waterway. He was smart, had his engineers build these bridges. And um, they built these bridges, well done, did a good job. A violent storm, an act of God came along and wiped the bridges out before they could cross over. The king Xerxes got so mad that he had every one of the engineers' heads chopped off. They did what he asked him. It was an act of God. And he got so mad that he actually had soldiers go out into the water and start whipping the water. <laughs> okay, this guy's irrational. When you start to get mad at the water, you know, like, I've probably kicked a bedpost before in anger and stubbed my toe. That's really irrational. You think about it, you're like, that was really dumb. This guy's out there mad at the water for the storm that came up. Not a guy that you want to like, and that's important in the story, not a guy that you mess around with. All powerful, but very irrational. And he irrationally chooses to eliminate all of the Jewish people. Mordecai hears this story and he realizes something at least has to try to be done. He goes to Esther and says, Esther, do you realize what's been said? And Esther kind of at first says, well, no one knows that I'm a Jew. Um, I'll be okay. And Mordecai comes back to her and says, listen, Esther, you can remain silent 
and you'll be okay, probably. But thousands upon thousands and thousands of your people are gonna die. And then he offers this key line. Would you, do you not think, Esther, that maybe you have been given this position at this time for such a time as this? Right? You all recognize that. And he challenges Esther to say, listen, I think there's a reason right now why you're the queen. And Esther embraces that. And she has her people fast and pray. And she devises a plan. Meanwhile, Haman is, is so stirred up about Mordecai and he's put this plan in place. And he, uh, he uh, is planning on approaching the king about killing Mordecai. And Esther devises a plan where she has a, a banquet and she invites the king and Haman. And the king's like, Esther, what, you know, or hold on just a second, I'm getting ahead of myself. Esther then decides after she commits to Mordecai to do something, she goes before the king. Now she was uninvited. It said she hadn't seen him for a month. And the way that worked is you either were invited to go before the king or if you just decided to show up and try it, it was a very dangerous thing to do. If he was in a bad mood and he was irritated by you coming up, and he would do that with anybody. But he didn't with Esther. She showed courage. She showed bravery. In fact, the words of Scripture says, she said, I'm going to go before the king, and if I perish, I perish. I'm going to do the right thing. The king says, yeah, or invites her in. She has this plan where she invites him and Haman to a feast. They go to this feast. Esther, for whatever reason, and we know it was God's providence, decides that the timing wasn't right to kind of confront Haman in front of the king. And she says, well, you know what? I really want you to come back tomorrow. I'll put on another feast and and I'll invite you two back tomorrow. In the meantime, that night, the king is having trouble sleeping. And so he calls for some reading material, right? That's what you do when you're having trouble sleeping. (laughs) I need to read so I can go to sleep. And as he's reading, he's reminded in the royal record that Mordecai had saved his life. Must have been a coincidence, right? That he couldn't sleep that night. Yeah. Okay. And he's so moved by that. The next morning, he's thinking about what can I do, what can I do to thank Mordecai? Just so happens Haman, his number two comes in, as he's supposed to, coming into work. And the king looks at Haman and said, what would you do if somebody had saved my life? How would you honor them? And Haman thinks it's gonna be him. He creates this elaborate thing and to which the king looks at Haman and says, that sounds like a great thing. I want you to do that for Mordecai. And we see this story takes a complete twist, right? The one who's planning and has put things into place, all of a sudden it started to turn. At the same point, Esther, in that second banquet, that second feast, confronts Haman in front of the king. And she does it in this way. She says, listen, there's someone who's trying to kill me, which enraged the king. (laughs) Who is trying to, you insult me by trying to kill the queen? And she said, well, king, I'm Jewish. 
And Haman has got you to utter this decree. And the king is moved so much that he leaves. Haman begins to beg. Ultimately, the story goes that the king is so moved and angry at Haman that he executes him that day. And the Jewish people were saved from um, being absolutely annihilated throughout the kingdom. That's kind of in a nutshell the story of Esther, right? I kind of did you the Cliff Notes version. But I want to remind you from that story just three things that I think are important for us to grab a hold of. The first one is this. Coincidence is overrated. We do that all the time, don't we? It was just a coincidence. You know, our world, we always talk about coincidence. Now, I would tell you that in this fallen world, it's random, it's unjust. All the time things happen that are just beyond our imagination. It's a world where, that lives kind of on the coincidence scale. But I would tell you that for a child of God, there are not coincidences. For a child of God, there is not coincidence. People say a lot of times everything happens for a reason, right? And sometimes I just want to like, oh, please don't say that. I mean, there is a reason, but they, God has everything happening for a reason. And I would say, listen, this fallen world, God has left to itself. The ways, the selfish kingdoms of this world, the ways of the heathen, God just, hey, you want your way? This is what happens in your fallen condition. He's always reaching out in mercy, calling every one of them to himself, but he allows them to live in a random, unjust crazy world where I guess maybe it seems like it's coincidence and but yet to a child of God there is no coincidence and just as God had his hand on Esther's life his people God still has his hand on our lives and coincidence is overrated I would ask you and tell you the same thing that Mordecai told Esther God has you where you're at with your circle of influence, with your friendships, your relationships, whatever it is. As his child, he has you there for a specific purpose he wants to accomplish in your life with you. And I would say it's the same words that were spoken to Esther. For such a time as this, you have been placed on this earth to hear the voice of God and to do his will, whatever it is. You say, that's simple, Chip. That's, are you kidding me? I came and you heard you say that. I would say, it's amazing how to me it seems like so many times we bump along in life and we just get through the next week. We just, and there is no overwhelming sense of what is God's purpose what is God wanting to accomplish with me? See, for Esther, it was 
She was in that place, placed by God for a specific reason, to save, to help save God's people. For you and I as his children, God has specific plans and purposes that he wants to accomplish with you right now for such a time like this. And we don't live thinking coincidence is just life. Coincidence is overrated to a child of God. Second thing I would remind you of from Esther's life is this. Doing anything worthwhile takes courage. One thing that stands out when you read through Esther's story is she had everything to, everything to lose by revealing who she was, by going before the king, by devising this plan to try to save her people. And I was just reading that this week and thinking about what that meant for her and what that, what that, uh, what that looked like. And I was reminded once again that anything doing worthwhile takes courage. The stories of the men and women of Scripture are men and women who when the odds were overwhelming and where circumstances were difficult and where things were not optimal at all, they still courageously acted and courageously believed. Nothing has changed. If you and I want to see our lives be impactful, significant, lives that reveal the glory of God and His grace to those around us, lives that are a part of helping to be salt and light in this dying, decaying world, lives that, 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 that uh, lift up good against evil, lives that stand for the life of Jesus in a world that is all consumed with itself, it is absolutely call us to be people of courage who are brave enough to take a stand, who are strong enough to keep at it. It takes courage. In fact, next week we're gonna talk about Joshua and the first words of Jesus to Joshua in the book of Joshua. How many times God looks at it and says, Joshua, be strong and be very courageous. God calls us to courage. And if you thought following Jesus and doing this and making a difference and, and living a life that is meaningful and purposeful is going to be without, without trial, without hardship, without reverse situations and difficult times, then that's not what Jesus ever promised to you. It takes men and women who are willing to be courageous Courage is something that's exhausting. Courage is something that wearies us. Courage is something that's the long road. It's not just one moment of courage. It's a lifestyle of willing to embrace my purpose, what God wants to do with my life, of always being faithful, of always working toward that good, of always being trustworthy, of always being, willing to, uh, being able to be counted on. It, just, it can get tiring and weary and it's so easy for us to just check out at times and say, you know what, I can't do this. So many times I've seen people who've taken a step back and coasted 
And out of that, decisions in their lives begin to trend in a way that they look back and they regret. Or they weren't strong at that moment. You know, I think about this for me, and this might sound weird, but <laughs> um, one of the biggest things I, am, I need to be courageous in my life is right now is to just continue to be the most consistent, most loving, most attentive parent I can be right now. You know how exhausting that is? Come on. Yeah. It can be exhausting. I mean, I got four of them. And God calls to me to be a man of courage right now when it comes to being a father and to having that conversation again and to be willing to, to work with my kids through this. Not that they're a trial, but it's just hard, right? I love them with all my heart, but God calls me to be a man of courage, to not check out, to not get distracted. Just things like that. God is always calling us to be courageous. Anything done that's worthwhile takes courage. And the last thing I would remind you is the power of one. One girl saves an entire race. One. And when you read the scriptures, we tend to think it took a group. It took a bunch of people. No, in every, every story we read, most of the time it's just one. One Abraham, one Noah, one Moses. God uses just one. He uses you. And with him in you, the power of one is an unbelievable power. And so we live every day realizing that just me with God in me is enough to impact the circle of influence I have, the circumstances I live through, the people I love and live with. Just me with God is enough to make a difference. The power of one little Jewish girl who followed God, was placed by God, was courageous, saved an entire people. And don't, don't minimize the impact that your one life has, has had, is having, and will have. God always uses just one. He uses many, but he can use just one. And you might be feeling like you're the only one in your context. You might feel like you're on your own so often. Well, that's okay. God still is using you. God still is working in you. The power of just one. Let's pray. Father, Esther reminds us of a few things. Beautiful story. One that we didn't even very tap into very much but Lord we're reminded that coincidences are not a part of a child of God's life and it's for such a time as this that each one of us are placed where we are with who we are and Lord help us to think that way to embrace the opportunities that you're going to give us and to, to see the purpose you have for us Lord give us courage and help us to believe that 
you and us, if it's just us, is enough. Go with us this week. Keep us strong in you, I pray. May we be blessed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day. Have a great week.